Good evening. My name is Sally, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. And if you're new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or you're not familiar with Al-Anon, I'm an Al-Anon because I go to Al-Anon meetings. I am not an Al-Anon simply because my life has been touched by the disease of alcoholism. And I'm a firm believer. <laughs> I'm a firm believer that that's what makes you an Al-Anon, our meetings. I would like to thank Jane and Doug and everyone who is involved in this conference for uh, asking me to come and share. I love conventions and I love conferences. <clears throat> and um, Keith keeps saying, I just can't believe I'm in Scott's Bluff. Um, it's kind of hard to believe uh, sometimes that we do get to come to places like this because considering where Keith and I came from, and what the disease of alcoholism, I can't say did to us, but did for us. Uh, I know that this is one of the fringe benefits. When I had been in Al-Anon about two years, I had one of these experiences happen to me. And I was asked to go to a conference in Arizona and share. And it was the format was like this. There was an AA speaker and an Al-Anon speaker. And I was fortunate to be asked to, to go and share Al-Anon. And the AA speaker was Joel from Tyler, Texas, and um, we had met Mary and Joe before that, and I, I stood in awe of this man, and um, so I did so often what we do when we're asked to go somewhere. I got all ready to go, it took me about two weeks, and we went over to the uh, hotel, got registered, and I immediately ran down to the lobby of the hotel and whipped out the program and I was admiring my name there and I was sitting between two men, one on each side of me. And I think maybe between the two of them they may have had a hundred years sobriety. And from the looks on their face I don't think they'd enjoyed a day of it. <laughs> and one reached over me and said to the other one, this is an AA conference, what have they got an Al-Anon on there for? And my heart fell. And I went back to the room, and I thought, why was I there? And I was there the same reason that I attend any meeting of Al-Anon and the same reason that I'm here, because my life has been affected by the disease of alcoholism. Uh, to qualify, uh, I am the wife of a sober alcoholic, and I have two children who are alcoholics, sometimes members of Alcoholics Anonymous. As Buck from Texas said, maybe I'm just a carrier of the disease. But I firmly believe um, that the disease of alcoholism was not, um, it was not what I thought it was, and it has not been what I thought it would be. I was raised in Oklahoma, and I knew nothing about drinking, nothing about alcohol. I, I never saw anyone drink. No one in my family drink, drank. No one in my family really did anything unless it was very tasteful. And if it wasn't tasteful, you didn't do it in front of the K-I-D-S. Um, they were sent outside to play or upstairs to tidy up their room or something when anything was discussed. Uh, I just, my frame of reference to real living or life in general was based on uh, what I saw, which was not, certainly not realistic, and books. And so consequently, my idea of drinking and alcohol or, was based on the same thing, movies and books. Now, I'll tell you what I thought drinking was. I thought drinking was maybe in a room about this size, except for walls, it would have windows all the way around, and it would be like maybe on the 16th story of a building. And there would be lights tinkling outside, and it would be a beautiful scene out there, and she would have on a white satin dress, and he had on a tuxedo, and they drank out of the right-shaped glasses, and they danced, and that's what I thought drinking was because I never saw anyone drink. I did not know that if you were sincere about your drinking that it came in cans and brown paper bags between your legs, but I was to find that out. <laughs> but if statistics are what we read about alcoholism and the fact that sometimes that we non-alcoholics are attracted to alcohol alcoholics. Uh, that might be true, because maybe to tell you a little bit how I ever got all involved in this. I came from a heritage of Indian and German. And uh, my great-grandmother was full-blood Choctaw Indian, and she married a full-blood German. 
she was granted 100 acres of land for every child that she had. And so my great-grandfather kept her very busy, and they had a lot of land. And she had a lot of boys in those 16 children. Not only did she get the land, consequently she controlled the purse strings. And as maybe some Indians believe, she did not believe her son should work. And... Um, there was this one uncle that my mother had, and when I was very small, I instinctively knew that nobody in the family liked Uncle Ferris. And he always had a rich widow on the stream. He got his Indian allotment. He always had a new pickup. And uh, he wore handmade boots and hand-sewn silk shirts and steps and hats, and he was uh, quite a rounder, as they used to say Uncle Ferris was. And I knew that nobody liked him because when they talked about Uncle Ferris, it was always in very whispered tones. And uh, he would go away and he'd be gone for a little while and he'd come back and he'd sit in a chair and they'd all talk about him very quietly. And I didn't know where he'd been or what he'd done, but he looked like he'd had a really good time. And I was the only one, I think, in my family that really liked Uncle Ferris. And the reason, I think, was is he really was the only one that was very exciting. And um, so maybe that... Maybe that is to me. Alcoholics are exciting people. Uh, if you don't believe it, just hang out with them a long time, and there's a lot of excitement. I love the little things that we have on our badges. I am one, and I love one. Because when I was in Al-Anon a little while, I heard a priest from New Jersey, Father Fred, talk. And he talked about the fact that maybe members of Alcoholics Anonymous and members of Al-Anon are the only people who truly love alcoholics. And I really do believe that. I believe that doctors maybe know the physical side of the disease and maybe psychiatrists can know what goes on in their head and the RAND Corporation can run reams and reams of computer sheets and tell why they drink or whatever. But I don't really believe that anyone truly loves an alcoholic like members of Alcoholics Anonymous and members of Al-Anon. And I can say that from true experience, because in the 17 years almost that Keith has been around the program, we've had a lot of alcoholics in our home in various stages of sobriety. And there is something there. When these people would come to our house for whatever occasion, there was a feeling there that I had for them that I, I got, would not have for other people in that condition. And some have stayed, and some have gone out again, and some didn't make it, and some are still sober. And I really do believe that we are the people who truly love the alcoholics. And that's what Al-Anon tells us. A loving, understanding attitude sometimes is the best help for an alcoholic. And I have to remember, too, that that only tells me I have to have a loving, understanding attitude. A voice in the back of my head can be saying, I hope a train runs over you, but I really do have a loving and understanding attitude. <laughs> when Matt spoke this afternoon, he talked about having difficulty with being able to really know, I think it is, uh, to know that he really loves people. And Al-Anon, we read in our literature, you may not like all of us, but you'll learn to love us in a very special way, the same way that we already love you. And so I know that that's true, and I think that is a very, very important word in our dialogue, is love. But I was born into this family that didn't drink. I had an uncle in Texas, and he used to come to Oklahoma um, Fourth of July or whatever occasion, and he would bring a keg of beer, and I don't know what happened to it. I never saw anyone drink it, so I never saw anyone drink. I just I knew nothing about it. And when I was in high school, I went to Baker, uh, to California. We moved to Bakersfield. Someone in my family read Steinbeck, so that's what any self-respecting Okie does. You go to California. And I uh, started high school at a high school called East Bakersfield High. And Keith had graduated from that school, and he was going to junior college across town. And he had been a big man on campus. And he came over to the high school one day at noon, as he did a lot, and he was driving a convertible. And he told me that day, the first day that I met him, that that was his convertible, and I believed him. And it wasn't. It was his mother's. But I believed him when he told me that, and I was to find that I always believed him when he told me things. I never, ever realized that I didn't have to believe him, but whatever he told me, I believed him. And I was to believe him time and time and time again. And when he would say those words, those words that we want to hear more than anything in the world, I'll never do it again. I always believed him, and I know why I believed him. <clears throat> he by trade is a salesman. 
And he sold me on that. But the reason that he sold me on it was that he believed it. When he would say, I will never do it again, he would say it in a way that I knew that he believed it. And so consequently, I believed it. And I'm glad that I did today, because had I done the things that I thought I wanted to do, when I would find out that he really didn't mean at that time, I, would be mar- I wouldn't be married to him. However, I would have divorced or left or killed the wrong man, because that's not the man that I'm married to today. But I was in high school, and he was in junior college, and we met, and we got married, and he had a scholarship to go to San Jose State, and we went up to San Jose, and we were very young. I was 17, and he was 19, and we went right into to San Jose, and it was right after... I always get the wars mixed up. It was the, uh, Viet- the, the Korean War, and everybody that was going to school there were was on a GI Bill of Rights, except Keith, and, uh, well, not except him, but everyone that was on this football scholarship, all our friends were on this, had this GI Bill of Rights, and we didn't have it because we were married and we had children, or we had one, and uh, he was in school. So we were thrown in uh, with people who economically were on our level. We all lived in temporary housing. Nobody had any money. Everybody had small children. Everybody was trying to get an education, which was fortunate because I'm sure at that early age we both would have bored very easily. So we were not living in the suburbs trying to keep up with the Joneses. And drinking was involved. Drinking was involved from the very first time Keith and I went out. And he was so cute when he drank. I I just can't tell you how cute he was when he drank. And he was so funny, and he was always the one that had the idea to do the things that were going to be exciting. And I just thought, my, you know, I just knew, they just didn't grow things like that in Oklahoma. <laughs> and just, he would just have ideas, and everybody would go along with it, and it was just fun. It was just fun. And we lived in this little apartment in San Jose over the Greyhound bus station, and our first child was a beautiful little baby girl. And I was doing what I like to do and what I really like to do today. I had this little baby girl to take care of. Keith was, the um, scholarship part of it was that he could eat on the training table at school, so I was not tied to three meals a day. We had a little apartment, and I could clean that apartment and take care of that baby, and I didn't have to worry about all those little incidentals like worrying about what to have for dinner, and he would go to school. And all of this time, I was in my mind making the thing that we talk about in Al-Anon. I had the picture going in my mind. And the picture was that as soon as he graduated from Santa Fe, that we would move to a little town in the Midwest. Now, Keith was born and raised in California. Whatever I thought he was going to do in the Midwest, I had no idea. But that was the complete picture that I had, because this also was based on what I knew of reality, which was books and movies. And in the books and movies, they always lived in a little town somewhere with lots of trees. As Clancy describes it, the typical little Andy Hardy town. And it would be a little house with a picket fence, and the picture always was he would be sitting in a big overstuffed chair, with maybe an Irish setter by his side, and the children huddled at his feet, smoking a pipe. Keith never smoked, but that didn't make any difference to me. That looked good. And I would be in the kitchen in my little apron with the Priscilla curtains on the window cooking. And that's what the picture was. So when the drinking was taking place during the college years, no matter how bad it was, I knew as soon as he got out of school that this is what was going to happen. And we'd move to that little town. And he'd be head of the athletic department, and I'd be the leader of the faculty-wise, and everything was just going to be perfect, because that's the way it was supposed to be. And I did not know that we were beginning to start the road that we know today was the, the road and the disease of alcoholism. And when Keith graduated from San Jose, we had two children. We had this beautiful little baby girl, and we had a darling curly-headed little boy, and they were 15 months apart. And when he graduated, he uh, was drafted by the uh, 49ers. And I thought, well, that's not bad. We'll move to San Francisco for a little while. And we were in, in the Bay Area for a while. And he came to me one day, and he said that he didn't think that he wanted to stay there, that he was going to go to Canada and play up there for the professional teams because they doubled his salary. Well, that made sense to me because, uh, well, to tell you how long ago it was, this 
you follow the sports, he signed for $4,000 and they were going to double it. And we just, we had never seen that much money. So we took this trip to Canada. Had I known then, I think I probably would have thought when we crossed over that line between Canada and the United States, there probably was a, one of those big Foster Kleiser signs there that says, Drink Canada Dry. And I think he thought, what an order, I think I'll try to go through with it. <laughs> because we drank and played our way across the, all the provinces in Canada, and we ended back up in a desert town called Ridgecrest. Well, Ridgecrest is a town in the middle of the desert, totally dependent on a naval base. And um, it really wasn't the picture house that I had, but... You know, we have a marvelous sense of stick to itiveness, and I knew that I could make that little house like the little house in the picture. And we lived up on this, on this desert, in this desert town of Ridgecrest, which it's not the ends of the earth, but you can see it from there. And, uh, our daughter started school there, and I started doing the things that I knew was going to make our life okay, because by now the drinking had become a, an aggravation, to say the least. And we stayed in Ridgecrest a little while, and we decided that we should move back to Bakersfield because both our families were there. And we moved back to Bakersfield, and we moved into a little house, and it wasn't really like the little house in the picture, but I knew that I could whip it into shape. And because I had this thing, I had this thing that if everything around me was in order, everything would be okay. And he wouldn't drink so much if I could just get everything around me in order. So this little house needed quite a bit done to it, but I knew that I could probably handle it and someday Better Homes and Gardens would knock on my door and ask me how I did it. And so that became my outlet for all the frustrations that were beginning to take place because now we had three children. And uh, this little house in East Bakersfield became the thing that got me through a lot of days because um, I have been in a lot of Al-Anon meetings and I've heard a lot of people come in and they said they got up off the couch and opened the drapes and turned off the TV and came to Al-Anon. That was not my case because my idea of having things in order around me was cleanliness. Um, alcoholics talk about obsessions. My obsession was cleanliness. I scrubbed the baseboards with a toothbrush. I. Um, if you came to my house and sat still long enough, I'd dust you or wax you or do something to you, you know. Just clean the house and use a Coke lid for an ashtray, but, you know, don't get anything dirty. Everything in my house was in order. The forks were stacked exactly, the spoons, the knives, the sheets were folded exactly like they came from the stores, and no one ever told me that that's the way they were, but I knew that's the way it was, and I just knew that if everything looked good, I would feel better, and he would come home, was really what it was. And we had these three children, and the two older ones were starting school, and I was doing all this cleaning, and I had been in, I'd been in the program a couple of three years, and I heard Mary R. talk once, and she talked about the fact that she dusted the keyhole, and you know, there was a little piece of me that thought, gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> Wonder if my keyholes were dirty. But... This was just the thing that I used as an outlet. I am basically a physically active person anyway, but we had this little house, and the drinking now had come to the point where I was beginning to believe and know that now is the time that we were supposed to get about this business of living. And I did not know that I was dealing with the disease of alcoholism, and it was progressing faster than I could clean, I can tell you. Because now Keith was starting to stay out at night. He never stayed out all night. He always came home. Why? I don't know sometimes. But he always came home. And I won't bore you with the drunkologue, but in just for a point of identity, I will tell you what a normal day was like uh, in the Carpenter household. And it was not like Leave it to Beaver or anything. It was, um, it always started the same. It started with him leaving in the morning and me saying, will you be home for dinner? And he always said yes, and I always believed him. And uh, this would go, this went on for quite a while. And little by little, the hour in the day crept up when I realized that he wasn't going to be home for dinner. And you know who got the brunt of knowing that. Not him, he wasn't there, but the, the kids. So when we talk about the disease of alcoholism being a family disease, I can tell you that me as the non-alcoholic did the things that makes the disease of alcoholism prevalent in the home. I was the physical one. He said to me one time, why do you get so mean when I drink? 
and I always got mean when he drank. But you see, that's the only way that I could, that's the only way I could get rid of the feelings that I had that I didn't know even know what I was feeling about. The thing that I thought that I had going for me was the fact that I knew that if I could look better than him, and how much does it take to look better than a drunk, but I knew that if I could look better than him, that he would see that he should do the things that I was doing, which my book said were his responsibilities. And uh, his responsibility in my book was to mow the lawn. <clears throat> Keith and I had been married 35 years, and I have yet to hear him bounce out of bed on any given morning and saying, I think I'll mow the lawn. <laughs> I have given up. <laughs> I have surrendered. But I had this thing that if this lawn looked good, he would see that he should have been home doing that and sit down at the Woolgirls having fun, and he would stay home and do it. And uh, Bakersfield gets very, very hot. Never occurred to me to mow the lawn in the morning or late evening. I would mow it on a Wednesday, high noon, and I would mow it one way and back the other and rake it and hose it and manicure it and clip it. Because I knew when he drove home that night and whipped into that driveway that he would see the lawn and think, my goodness, I should have done that. Now, he couldn't see the driveway where I thought he'd see the lawn. I don't know. <laughs> and the second reason was then the neighbors could look out the window. And you know what they would say. Look at that. My, there she is out there mowing the lawn again. Isn't that awful? But you see, they could say it to each other, but don't say it to me. Don't feel sorry for me, and don't tell me that my husband drinks too much. Don't ever criticize my husband. It tells us in our Al-Anon literature, you know, we try to cover up and we make the excuses. You know, they hide the bottles and we hide the alcoholic. And so don't tell me that my husband drinks too much. So I would get this lawn done, and uh, then I would start preparing for the homecoming. And I could prepare for the homecoming in many ways. I could uh, <clears throat> call around town, which I did on a daily basis, to find out if he was there, simply to have the bartender to tell me, no, he says he's not, and threaten to come down and throw bricks through the window or whatever. And um, Or if I was really lucky that day, I could find in the uh, TV guide where there would be a movie on about drinking. And there's a lot of them. Come fill the cup, days of wine and roses, too much too soon, lost weekend. I knew them all and I knew all the dialogue in them. And I would watch those movies and I would take notes. And in one of the movies, come fill the cup, James Cagney said, one is not enough and a thousand, one is too many and a thousand is not enough. And I could not wait for Keith to get home so I could tell him that. That was the most profound thing that I had ever heard. And it's the proverbial mouth connected to the doorknob because he would whip into the driveway and I was ready because I had, all, had had all day to get my lecture ready. And I would start with, where have you been? And, you know, I knew where he had been because I'd been at my station on the phone all day finding out where he had been, but I was just wanted to see if he was going to lie to me. And he would usually answer, yes, you know, I had a couple, so what? And that was his first mistake of the evening, because so what, in my script, was my cue to tell him so what, and I did. So what that day, the day before, and then, you know, so did his mother, and if you loved us, and on and on and on. And he would just <coughs> sit there in his listening chair, and I stood in my talking position, and I told him so what. And when I got all through, I did the thing that, I did the thing, the one thing that really made me feel like that I was getting to him. And that was, I would top it all off with, and you're an alcoholic. And I could say alcoholic with a connotation of a four-letter word. The way I said it, he knew that if the lecture was finished and he would waddle off to bed and pass out or go to sleep or whatever. And I would go to bed, and I would be laying there with that proverbial knot in the gut. And you know what I was thinking? This is when those things that we learn about after we come to Al-Anon that before we don't have a label for. And I would lay there with that guilt and that remorse for having said the things to Keith that I had said. And then I would say to myself, I wonder if the kids heard me. Now the people two blocks away, or two doors away anyway, could have heard me. But I would convince myself that the kids didn't hear me. Now I think that's okay. They didn't hear me. And anyway, I didn't mean to do it that night. I really wasn't going to say anything that night. 
But it's, it's like, must be like drinking or overeating. Once you get started, you know, what the heck, you might as well just finish that and not do it again. So I wasn't going to do it the next night. And I would convince myself the kids hadn't heard me. And then the next morning when we talk about the disease of alcoholism within the family. Those little kids got up every morning and never knowing what mother was going to be like. They knew that Keith drank. They knew what happened when he drank. And he was a happy-go-lucky drunk. He was a good-natured drunk. And they loved their father drunk or sober. But I would get up in the morning and it would all totally hinge on how he was the night before, really. And if he had been an extremely bad, pex-bad boy, um, you know, I would be, I would be doing this Maybe I wouldn't be talking to anybody. You know, and those are the, that's the morning when the kids would say, um, you know, there's no milk on the table for the cereal, but don't, don't ask her, don't upset her, you know, just, just eat it. Because I wasn't talking to anybody. That silent, physical action. And maybe the next morning, um, maybe the next morning I would be screaming at the top of my lungs. They call it primal therapy today. But it's screaming and yelling is what it is. And maybe the next morning uh, I would be decide that I was going to be like Beaver Cleaver's mother and everything would be perfect. And uh, those little kids left that house every morning never really knowing what their mother was going to be like because I was the one that had the change of personality. I was the Jekyll and Hyde, not Keith. He was very even. And then the day would start with all my plans about what I was going to say to him when he got home. And this continued on until one day he told me that we were going to move from Bakersfield and we were going to move to Los Angeles. And I thought Los Angeles was Julie's Bar in the Coliseum. That's all I'd ever seen of it. And uh, we didn't move downtown. We moved into a little suburb called Woodland Hills. And if I had been able to give you the picture in my mind of that little house, it would have been the house that we moved in. And I knew things were going to be different on Cresty Street than they were on Mesa Drive because we knew different people. And things were going to be good. The only thing was the disease of alcoholism and all of my problems and all of the problems that extend from this disease went with us. And um, it didn't change except the two older children got to the point when they would say, you know, Mom, you know, do whatever you're going to do, but, you know, I've got things to do and places to go. And I, so I began to lose my sounding boards because those two older, older children became my sounding boards. And uh, Keith um, got into his own business and he was um, making a lot of money. None of it ever came home, but he, did a, he had this business going and... Uh, so one day I decided that I was going to get a job um, because I thought perhaps that if I got a job I would be able to be, um, uh, well I should have just had Beacons or Mayflower on a retainer because either I was leaving or he was leaving or well, I was going to do this big grandiose thing all the time. But I got this job in a bakery and I would go to, to uh, work every afternoon and then I would come home and uh, you know things didn't change. By now the drinking had gotten to the point that something told me that uh, it was something more than I could handle and I really don't know what it was and we began making these moves within Woodland Hills and um, what began to happen to me was I began to get up in the mornings and I just didn't have that bounce back it just didn't come through I could not make myself believe that today was going to be different and I had done that for 18 years almost of Keith drinking so I decided that this time when I was going to leave, because I always made this grand exit, I am leaving and I'm taking these children and I'm going to remove all the happiness from your life. And uh, then I would maybe drive up to Ralph's Market and sit in the parking lot until I thought he got worried and I would go home. As the children got older, I found out if I said, I'm going to go and leave the kids with you, why, he'd maybe snap into shape for two days back to back that way. But um, I got this, one morning I got up, and Keith had drank for three weeks, uh, as I remember it, in a way that it began to frighten me. Because he would come home, and he literally would be staggering more than he had ever staggered. And things began to happen uh, to him physically. I could see that. And I could not believe uh, that this was the same man. And it, it became very frightening to me. I, um, I decided then that if I was going to leave, that I had to have some resources. So I decided to get a little job. And I went out and I applied for a job in a room not much bigger than this with maybe 40 ladies that worked there. 
And you know, Johnny Harris says the little hosses get the little crosses and the big hosses get the big crosses. And uh, I got exactly what I could handle at that time because I had never set foot in a factory and um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was able to do that. And I took this job and I decided that I was going to get some money and I was going to leave this time. And I um, uh, began to go to work every day and what began to happen was I began to, as we learn in Al-Anon, get off his back. When he came home at night, I no longer was waiting up for him because I had to go to work the next day. And about nine months before this, one day I had asked Keith, um, he says that he just didn't want to hear me scream and yell, so he decided to go with me. But I had read an article about the National Council, and I asked him if he would go with me. And we went down there, and the man told him about Alcoholics Anonymous, and a lady upstairs told me about Al-Anon. And we left that place, and it never crossed my mind that I was not willing to go to Al-Anon. But on a daily basis, I would wonder, wonder why he doesn't go to AA. I wonder why he doesn't go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That, is a, that makes me know that it is much more difficult, I believe, to get the non-alcoholic to go to a program than it is the alcoholic. Obviously, it is if statistics are right, and each alcoholic directly affects five people. I know that most AA meetings are larger than Al-Anon meetings. But I didn't want to go to Al-Anon. I didn't see any reason why I should go to Al-Anon. He wasn't going to AA. So I took this job, and I was going to get some money together, and I was going to leave. I didn't know where I was going to go, but I was going to leave. He called me one day at work, and he told me that he had called AA. You know, we learn in Al-Anon that we must remember where we came from. Now, either that morning or within the last 24 hours of that phone call, I had probably laid across my bed and cried and thought, you know, God, if you will let him find some way to quit drinking, I'll do anything. And when he called me and told me that he had called Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought, is he crazy? Does he think I'm going to go to Alcoholics Anonymous? But I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll go home, because he said this man was going to make a 12-step call on me. I thought, I'll go home and see what's going to happen and I rushed home and a man did come to the house to make a 12-step call on Keith and I pushed my chair right up next to Bob and I uh, listened to what he had to say and he did not say that Keith had to quit drinking he did not say Jim Eubanks you have a call Jim Eubanks Is he in the audience? Does anyone know Jim Eubanks? It does say it's an emergency. Um, this man came to make a 12-step call on Keith, and he did not tell him that he had to quit drinking. He didn't tell him he had to do anything. And he told him the most horrendous story I have ever heard. Because this man was a very violent alcoholic when he drank. And first of all, he was a bartender. Now, he was five years sober, but I didn't even hear that. All I heard that he was a bartender. And you know that any self-respecting Al-Anon is not going to have a bartender in her house. So that's all I heard, and I did not hear him telling him he had to quit drinking. I didn't tell him that he, hear him that he had to do anything. And I thought my one chance that Keith might get the idea about not drinking had been totally screwed up by this guy. But I, rather than let his, you know, make him the next trip be a total loss. During the years that Keith drank, in the last few years that he drank, I had made a scrapbook about drinking and alcohol and alcoholism, and I used to cut out those Lockhorn cartoons, and I used to copy things out of the Reader's Digest, and I would go to the library, and I wrote the Department of Health and Welfare about a pill I read about once, and I had this whole scrapbook compiled, and when Bob started to leave, I showed him my scrapbook. And I pointed out the things that I had learned about alcoholism, and he was very courteous, and I don't think he gave me much of a chance, but he did uh, give Keith a chance, and they came back that night, and they took Keith to a meeting. This was on a Thursday, and I thought, well, that made sense, because Friday, he probably might have to go to another meeting, and Saturday, he could mow the lawn, and Sunday, we'd go on a picnic, and Monday, we'd be in a higher income bracket, and everything was going to be wonderful now. He would quit drinking. <laughs> And while he was at that meeting that night, 
a lady named Judy called me, <clears throat> and she talked to me about going to Al-Anon. Now, I had heard about Al-Anon nine months before this, but I really didn't see any reason why I should have to go. But what Judy said to me was, we need you. And I thought, well, that made sense, you know. <laughs> I got Keith sober. I mean, he was at a meeting right that night. So they, they needed me to tell me how, how, they, how I could help them. Now, one of the things that happens to a lot of us when um, we're living in a drinking situation is we begin to lose the things that we learn about getting back when we come to Al-Anon, and that's uh, self-respect and um, confidence in ourselves. And what happened to me in the years that I was living in the drinking situation was I began to lose this thing of... um, Self-respect, I guess you would call it, or sometimes we call it learning to be the martyr or being the martyr. And if you're not a martyr, if you've never been one, don't even bother because it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work to be a martyr because to be a good martyr, you know, you have to have a total body language. You know, you have to just really look weary a lot. And uh, you never buy yourself anything to wear, never. You buy strawberries out of season, and then you tell the family how much you have given for that and how much you're doing without so that they can have all of this. And you wear a just pitiful attire, and um, you sigh a lot. You sigh an awful lot, particularly between you or between him and the football game. That's, that's when, you, when you have that basket of clothes, you know, and you just, you just give it that sigh. You shuffle a lot. But now he was sober, so I'm going to go to my first Al-Anon meeting. I could work it in Friday night. I knew our weekend would be quite busy. And uh, so I got all dressed up the next night, and I went to a meeting of Al-Anon at a place called Shadow Ranch. And I went, walked into that meeting, and um, I have heard it said in Al-Anon, and I've heard it said in Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked through those doors and I saw you people and the look in your eye and I knew that I had found everything that I was looking for. And that's true. I walked through that door of Al-Anon in a hot July night of 1967 and I found everything that I was looking for. And it took me about two minutes because I was looking for all of the reasons why I didn't need to go to Al-Anon and I found them. One lady's husband, if you can believe it, was still drinking. Mine was sober a day in a row. One lady's husband... One lady's husband actually hit her. Keith never struck me. As I said last night, I would have hit me a hundred times if I'd have been that man. I used to stand with my nose in his chest and I'd say, hit me. I dare you. Are you watching, kids? Hit me. If he had, Arbutus would be talking tonight or Elsa or somebody else. (laughs) But I walked into that room and I looked around and I found everything I was looking for. I found all the reasons I didn't need to go to Al-Anon. Those people weren't even dressed up. Some of them had kids that actually smoked dope. And they talked about having their car repossessed. You don't say things like that. You say it's in the garage for repairs. You know, my mother taught me to be courteous, polite, and I sat through their meetings and told them I thought it was very nice for them. And I started to leave, and I looked down on the literature table. And when I was a child, I was not permitted to read comic books. And right there, in plain sight, on the literature table, was a comic book. And they had talked a great deal about the simple program, and I thought, well, that's, you know, it makes sense for those that really need simplicity. They had condensed it to a comic book. I was in Al-Anon a little over a year, and I had begun to do the things that my program taught me to do, and that's extend my hand to a newcomer and give them the literature and my phone number and my last name. And um, I was gathering up the literature, and I looked down, and I had this comic book in my hand, and I don't know about any of you, but if there's any old window standers in the room, I could have posed for that picture, because there she is, a child on each side, one in the arms, looking out the Venetian blinds, And she's playing those games that I used to play, I'm sure. If one Volkswagen comes by the house before 10 American-made cars, he'll come home before 2 o'clock. If he's not there by 2, you play 5 out of 7, you know, whatever. 
But you do those things because those are the kind of little mental games that get you through the night. And I, when I saw that comic book, when I was in, after I'd been in Al-Anon a little while, I really realized why that they tell us that we are all really alike. And I looked at the picture on that book, and I knew the feeling that that lady had at the window. And I've known a lot of past window standers since I'd been in Al-Anon. But anyway, I didn't like that meeting, and I didn't need that meeting. And, you know, I was busy. I was going to do these wonderful things. I didn't know what they were, but I knew that, that, that we had to do something. And Keith was going to AA, and he began to take a hold of AA just like he does life in general with a lot of enthusiasm. And he just went to meetings morning, noon, and night, and to probably that he was only going to women's stags because he talked a lot about the women. And they called the house, it seemed to me, a lot. And it made sense to me. Women drank. They drank in bars. They all got sober and they went to AA. So they had a lot in common to talk about. And, you know, I didn't have really a great deal to talk to Keith about because I talked about his drinking for an awful long time. And then I realized that they probably had a crash course in slogans like, uh, I'm doing the best I can do. Big deal. I was working and he wasn't. That didn't seem like much to me. Or, uh, I'm sober, aren't I? You know, big deal. I've been sober all my life. I didn't really understand that that had any meaning. And the one that I hated most, and the one that I thought that he saved to really get the hackles up on the back of my neck, and that was, my sponsor says. <laughs> and I hated that phrase, and I hated AA, and I hated the sponsor. No, no. And so one night he said, would you like to go hear my sponsor talk? And I said, okay. And I went to talk. And when I got there, he looked just like the guy that had okayed my check at the market that day, kind of a little Mr. Peepers type thing, and he waved his arms a lot, and he had a funny name, Clancy, and everybody just thought he was wonderful, and I hated him, you know, because it seemed like no matter what I said, he had a book, and it would say, if she asks or she says, the answer is no. And so I thought, well, if he's going to go to these AA meetings, I'll just keep busy. And the thing that was happening was Keith was beginning to make all of the changes that his program has taught him to do, and nothing was happening to me. And uh, one morning he told me that he uh, was on a Saturday, and uh, I had to clean house that day because I had to work the other five days a week. And uh, he told me that he was going to go to Tehachapi, which is a men's institution, for an institutional meeting. And that wasn't unusual. He went to meetings all the time. That's all he ever did was go to meetings. And uh, he said, go by and pick me up and... Um, be home about four o'clock and that's the way it always was somebody always came by and picked him up and he um he was right she came by to pick him up in a big black car now it probably was not the way it was but it appeared to me that she literally floated out of the car and through the door and she had she was kind of a cross in my mind of raquel welch and sarah fawcett and she floated through the door and she said oh Hey, mm. I'm standing in the kitchen in my fuzzy go-ahead in my bathrobe and then she said what was her name? <laughs> and off they went and I thought you know that's the way it is because I had been around AA people enough and to enough AA meetings to know that's exactly what happens those men go to AA. You have given them the best years of your life. They go to AA. They get one of those real curly permanents, and they buy those silky shirts and unbutton them to here, and fluff up the hair on their chest and buy a gold chain with a big medallion on it and run off with a newcomer. The next day, Keith told me that he had to go to Malibu, and would I want to go with him? And uh, I went, and it was raining very, very hard, and he said, I think I'll take a shortcut. Keith has a fantastic sense of direction, never gets lost. We went back to Winnipeg, which we hadn't lived in in 25 years, and when we lived there, it was in the summer. We went back a couple of Januarys ago to a conference. There was 10 feet of snow. The trees had all grown huge, and he went exactly back to the house where we lived. So when he came back over that passed in Malibu and he said I think I'm lost I knew that he wasn't lost 
And you know, what we think and what is for real are two far different things. Now here I tell you, this man had never laid a hand on me. But I had it all figured out because we were in this alcoholic truck that didn't have a straight fender on it and the passenger's door wouldn't open from the inside. You had to open it from the outside and it's raining. And I knew what was going to happen. He didn't need me anymore. He was sober and he had all those friends and they called him all the time and he went places and he did things. And he wasn't lost. He was going to get me up on Stunt Road there and he had me on the sheer side of the cliff and he was just... And I, I thought this. I really thought this. This is why maybe they shouldn't have that slogan around that says, think, think, think. But I really thought this. I thought, he's going to literally push me out of this truck. He'll drive down to the bottom of the hill. He'll go to an AA meeting, and they'll say, what happened to your wife? And he'll say, I don't know. And they'll all go to coffee, and that'll be the end of it. Because I had begun to feel like I was not a part of his life. And the truth be known, I was not a part of his life. He had a program. He had friends and he was doing the things that his program to taught, had taught him to do. So between Wanda and her Tehachapi trip and this thing, I decided that I was going to go to Al-Anon. And I went to Al-Anon with a different attitude and a different feeling. And I went to a Thursday night meeting in Tarzana, which Matt's wife and I still go to, or I did when I lived in Tarzana. And that meeting became my home meeting. And I began to listen to what... They were talking about, about the feelings instead of looking for the situation. And I realized that I got as angry when Keith drank one beer as when he fell down on the floor drunk. It didn't make any difference to me. And I began to listen to what they talked about when they talked about working the steps. And I wanted to do it right. And someone said, when you walked in your first Al-Anon meeting, you had worked the first half of the first step. You had admitted you were powerless. And that made sense to me. It made sense to me that the word alcohol was only mentioned in that step. And the rest of the steps talk about him and God and a higher power. And I, um, I was raised in the Midwest, as I say, and I had a good Midwestern religious upbringing. But I didn't understand this higher power thing, really, as we understand it in our program. And along the freeway in Anaheim, there's a big billboard. And it's advertising a, a mortuary. And on that billboard, there's a picture of what from the back is obviously Christ. And he's standing in front of a door. And there's a person on the other side of the door. But there's no doorknob on the side of the door where Christ is standing or Jesus or God or whoever. He has no doorknob. So I know today, you know, that the doorknob is on my side of this relationship. And if I choose to open the door, he will come in. So when they talked about working the steps and higher power and God and all of these things, I wanted to do it right. And um, someone in Texas gave Keith a copy of the 12 steps the way they were originally written. And originally the, t the seventh step said, humbly on our knees. And as I said, I'm an active, physically active person. And so for me, I put the on our knees back in it and I decided that I would get on my knees every night before I went to bed. Now, we sit, never say never and we never say always, but I can honestly say, to my knowledge, in over 15 years, I have never gone to bed that I have not been on my knees. I have had to get out of bed and get on my knees sometimes, but I do know that to the best of my knowledge, I have always gotten on my knees before I go to bed. And the prayer that I said that night is the prayer that I said last night, and I'll say it tonight. I am grateful for everything that he's given me, and I am grateful for everything that he's left me. But I am more grateful for the things that he's taken away. He's taken away the proverbial knot in the gut, the hole in the stomach, the sense of impending doom, the gray tunnel. He has taken those things away and replaced it with people and programs and meetings and conferences. And keep us sober, and I have started going to Al-Anon, and it tells us that now our life is supposed to start being perfect. But I told you earlier in my talk that we had three children. And when you got three children, sometimes you've got three problems. These three children were all raised in the same family, same parents, same arguments, same houses, same everything. And if you had asked me which one's going to be trouble, I would have said that one. And that is the one that's straight arrow. That is our middle child, our oldest son. Our first child was a beautiful baby girl, and she grew into a beautiful, beautiful lady. And when she was 19, she went back to Kansas City to become a TWA airline stewardess. 
she came home between the training and the time that she was supposed to go back. And when she got home, the man that she was badly in love with had, uh, in two-week period of time, had fallen in love with someone else. So she was jilted and rejected. And for whatever reason, at that point in her life, she began to do the things that alcoholic women do. And she began to live seven years of self-destruction. And she informed Keith and I one night that she was going to leave our home and she was going to move in with Joe, who she had met two weeks before. And uh, her daddy wasn't, he wasn't too happy to hear that because Joe was not the picture of what you'd want your daughter to even see, much less move in with. But we realized she was of age, she could do what she wanted to, so she did move out of our house and she moved in with Joe. And some ten days later that phone call came at 5.30 in the morning that you just... When you live in a situation where those things are happening, you know you're going to get that phone call someday. And it came at 5.30 in the morning, and it was an anonymous tip that Kim uh, was in St. John's Hospital. And they didn't know who she was, but this person knew because they were all involved in an accident and they had gone off and left her. And Keith and I went there to that hospital with our two boys. Clancy came to that hospital, and many, many people from Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon came there. And they supported us, and they supported our daughter. And she was to stay in that hospital for a month in intensive care. And when she came out, she couldn't live with the results of that accident because she had been involved in many things where her face was her fortune, so to speak. And that face had now had over 400 stitches in it. And the loss of um, a lot of senses and uh, a part of her eye, and uh, she just was put back together. That's the best that they could do. And so in those seven years with repairing surgery that they do today, physically she began to look okay, but um, mentally and emotionally this girl was destroyed. And so she did the only thing that she knew to do to find the relief from what was, what was in her life. And uh, she was serious about it. And some five years later after that, we received the, the second phone call concerning her. And she had decided that life was not worth living. And we went to UCLA Hospital and she was to survive that gun in her stomach. And she came out and she, uh, for whatever reason, she decided to turn her life around. And she danced around the edges of AA for a while. And she uh, was the first woman engineer at KTLA and she um, met a man there who had uh, been a cameraman. And one day they had had all of the life of Hollywood that they could stand and they packed up their goods and sold their home and they moved to Pony, Montana. And it's a little town of about 90 people counting old men and dogs. And um, she loves it. She calls it God's little pocket of the earth. And she loves, she has a marvelous husband and she has a good life. And she's a productive citizen in the community. And she drives 32 miles every Tuesday night to a little town called Innes, Montana. And she stops on the way and picks up Joe, the little crippled veteran. And she goes to her little AA meeting over there. And she said, Keith and I both come up at different times and talk to those ten people. And, uh, you know, that's where she had to find it. She didn't find it in the shadow of her father's AA program. And she didn't find it in my Al-Anon. And she didn't find it with his sponsor. She found it where she needed it most. And that was when she moved to Montana. And this second son that I told you that is just, he is an absolute marvel. He is the closest thing to normal, I guess, that our family will ever know. And um, Keith had, uh, his name is Keith Duke. When he graduated from high school, he went to Seattle, Washington, and he became a, a professional fisherman. And he met a little girl in Alaska and uh, told us that he was going to get married. And he called one day and he asked, could they have the wedding in our backyard? And I could remember when that young man would not bring his friends home for cookies after school, not because their father was a drunk, but crazy lady here, you know what she's going to be doing. <laughs> and he asked us, could, uh, could he and Annie have the wedding in our backyard? Because they knew our home was open and they knew that Keith and I had let go of a lot of things and one of them was trying to tell him wh- how he should live his life. And uh, we said, of course. And they came down and they uh, prepared all of their own wedding and they had two of their friends, the princess and the frog. Uh, the princess sang and the frog played the guitar. And Keith and Ann lived, they call it close to the earth. Uh, if you live on a farm, you know, it's just hard living. But they loved that kind of life and they were, they were happy and they uh, wanted to have this earthy wedding. And so Annie had this little dress made. It looked like a gunny sack to me, but she thought it was cute. And the princess is singing away and the frog's strumming on his guitar and they come across the patio and, you know, Keith's mother said, oh, 
you know, my mother said, oh my goodness, you know, I said, don't worry about it. His tennis shoes match her dress. <laughs> so, all during the wedding, Kyle, our youngest, is whipping around the garage smoking his dope or whatever it is he was doing, you know, because that was his lifestyle. And uh, he had failed at being a dope dealer. Uh, I don't know what he did with the money, but he, you know, when older men in black suits and white ties that smell of garlic knock on your door and ask for your baby, you know somebody's in trouble. And uh, that was what was, began to happen to Kyle. Um, he just um, he just decided that he wanted to live a life of, of doing those things. And uh, Keith and I would one day, we couldn't get together. But one day we happened to both be on the same vibe and we said to him, you know, we love you very much, but you can't live and do those things at 5008 Mecca. So he packed his worldly goods, and he went to Las Vegas to feed his second sickness, the Greenfield fever. He loves to gamble. And uh, we didn't know where he went, but we were fairly sure that might, might have been because we didn't hear from him. And we have a friend, Maurice, who was a writer, and he went over there to write about backgammon or some gambling thing in Las Vegas. And he came back, and he said, guess who I saw at a meeting? His first meeting, he raised his hand. He said, your son, Kyle. So you see, he went to Las Vegas and he found his program and he stayed in the program for three and a half years. And I spent uh, two days with him last week. He is not going to meetings. I know that he is doing those things again, but my program has taught me. I was able to enjoy that young man for those two days. He made a very, very big effort to make things okay. He was the, he was the host and I was the guest. I didn't wash his clothes. I didn't do his dishes. I made my bed, not his. I didn't pick up anything. Because I have learned, you know, he's 27 years old. I have taken the label off of my baby. And this is a young man who's made a decision to do these things. And my program has taught me that I can live the good life. And I can enjoy the good things. And that's something that I never knew when Keith was drinking. I never knew to look at the good periods. It was always bad and it was going to be bad tomorrow. I just knew that. And I remembered the things that I had thought um, when Pat was talking today, and he talked about the death of his mother, uh, you know, I used to lay in bed and I used to think, I just wish Keith would just have a nice tidy accident on the way home. You know, don't sprinkle the car or anything, because I needed that, but just do something. But I never really thought about things like that when it came to my children. I just wanted them to come home. I wanted their physical safety. And um, so when Keith would, would be out like that and I would think these thoughts, <clears throat> and I would only think of the things that the drinking involved that were not pleasant. We went to Hawaii a few years ago and we stayed in a place and the windows didn't have drapes, they had shutters on them and they were all white and we have a, a, a big master bedroom in our home in Tarzana and when we redid that room we, we wanted to do it like that hotel room and we did the bedroom windows in, in white shutters. And the sun would come in those shutters. And one morning I woke up before Keith and I, the shutters were just tilted enough. The sun rays were coming in. And they were coming across his face. And Keith has big hands. And they were laying on his chest. And I looked at those hands and I looked at that face. And I really realized, you know, this man today is not the man that drank. The body is there, but the mind is different. And the emotions are different. And I looked at those hands. And as I say, Keith never touched me. He never struck me in their loving, kind hands. And I really realized what a true friend I had in this man. And our beauty said today um, that she um, could not or was not or couldn't say that she was grateful that Bill was an alcoholic. You know, if you had asked me what I had wanted to be married to, an alcoholic wouldn't have been on the top of the list. But considering the life that we live due to the drinking, considering the things that happened to Keith during his drinking, and considering the way that he felt I'm grateful that he has decided that he's an alcoholic because there is no other program that I know that would handle the problems that he had. And consequently, there's no program that would handle the problems that I had if I had not found Al-Anon. So I am certainly grateful that I'm a member of Al-Anon. And I know that he's comfortable in his program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know that I know that this is a family disease. And I know that I know that it is a continuing program, that I must continue to go to Al-Anon meetings if I want to have the benefits that I have today. If I had made a list of all of the things that I wanted before sobriety, 
none of the things that I have today would have been on that list because I didn't know those things existed. I didn't know that the fact that there are no big deals was ever important because everything was a big deal in my life. But there are no big deals in our life. We're living in St. Louis. We've been there three months. We must move. We don't know where we're going or what we're going to do or when we're going to leave. But you know, there's no big deal because it's just another adventure in our life. And uh, so I am grateful that I can be in an Al-Anon meeting in Nebraska or St. Louis or Denver or anywhere that I am and be with people that I know understand. That's the key to the program. They had a marathon in New Orleans uh, at the International in 1980. And uh, a man from... Los Angeles, Chuck Nesbitt, and Keith were fortunate enough to be able to chair that meeting. And they had people from all over the world chair the meetings and speakers and leaders from all over the world. And the theme for that meeting for Alcoholics Anonymous was the joy of living. And I know when I stand at any podium and when I sit in any chair at an Al-Anon meeting that I've had more than my share. And I am so grateful. And I thank you and I love you. Good night.